Hi there, and welcome to the media ministry of River Bible Church. I'm Pastor Dustin Daniels, inviting you to visit our website to download today's sermon notes. You can sign up for our newsletter and also submit a prayer request. We would love to pray for you and answer any questions that you may have. For more information, visit riverbible.org. Now let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. All right, if you would, please open up your Bibles now to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 23 through 26 today. If you're uh, visiting with us and you don't have a Bible, or if you would like a, a, a new translation of God's Word, we've got Bibles in the back there. Feel free to stand up and, and grab one of those. Uh, we want to make sure you've got God's Word as you, uh, as you leave today. Well, let me do a review from last week. We have really spent the last several months studying the Sermon on the Mount. You know, the, the Sermon on the Mount, it is the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher ever. You know, Jesus doesn't have only one point to his sermon, he's got many. And that's one of the many, many reasons that we study God's word verse by verse. We don't want to miss anything. Um, and we've learned so far, really, there's a specific structure and there's a flow that Jesus uses with his sermon. Uh, Jesus begins preaching with the Beatitudes. He tells people how to be blessed, how to be happy. Jesus then teaches about our newfound identity as his disciples. And finally, Jesus teaches about his own identity. And then after revealing who he is, and what he's doing in verses 17 through 20, Jesus then starts to link the law into his sermon with verses 21 through 48. So last week, uh, Jesus began an exposition on the Ten Commandments. He starts with a command that most people, Christian or non-Christian, will agree on. Do not murder. And as we discussed... You know, many people look at this commandment as if it's the sole requirement in the getting into heaven, right? I'm a good person. Why? Because I haven't murdered anybody. I think it's pretty convenient to compare ourselves to a bloodthirsty criminal or a cold-blooded murderer. Why do we do that? We do it because the comparison makes us feel superior in our own minds, Last week, we looked at how Jesus handled this kind of, uh, of comparison. Jesus used a, a familiar phrase with his disciples. He said, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. So Jesus took this command of, of do not murder, this command that everybody is so familiar with, this command that most people agree on, and he taught it as it was meant to be taught. He didn't teach it like the scribes and the Pharisees. And he didn't teach it like the scribes and the Pharisees because their interpretation of murder was superficial. And if something is superficial, well, it means that it's attainable in some form or fashion. So he said, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. 
So in using that phrase, Jesus was referencing what's called the halakha. The halakha, it means the walk. It refers to the oral traditions of the rabbis. So everybody listening to Jesus' sermon knew what Jesus is talking about here. 2,000 years later, though, we don't. We don't know what the halakha is. So when we hear this phrase, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, well, we immediately think, well, wait a second, Jesus, Jesus must be contradicting the Old Testament. And if Jesus contradicts the Old Testament law, uh-oh, we got a problem on our hands. We got a substantial problem on our hands. But we know that Jesus is not contradicting anything because Jesus himself said in verse 17, he says, look guys, don't think that I came to abolish the law. Or the prophets, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So the question is, fulfill what? What did Jesus fulfill? I think it's helpful to think of the law and the prophets as musicians playing in this unfinished symphony. Or maybe actors in a play with no climax to the drama. In other words, the Old Testament is unfinished. And Jesus came to finish the symphony with this amaz amazing crescendo. He came to finish and complete the play with the final dramatic scene. He says in verse 18, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter, or I, I love this, not even the stroke of a letter, not even the dot on an I, will pass away from that law until all things are accomplished. Part of the all things here is correcting the misinterpretation of God's law. So let me ask you this. How is it possible that the scribes and the Pharisees were so wrong in their interpretation? I mean, the scribes and the Pharisees, these guys were the religious scholars of the day. They were the pastors and the priests and the ministers. These guys were the academics. They had doctor of ministry degrees. They had their PhDs. Some of these guys were so smart, they had both. So how is it possible that they got it all wrong? Have you ever noticed that the only time Jesus gets angry is at these guys, these men? I think that's a pretty critical insight for us today because it does serve as a warning. The gospel of Christ is... It's simple enough for a child to understand. And yet the word of God in every generation eventually becomes distorted. Every passing generation seems to get a, a watered down version of the gospel. And over time, it's so watery, there is no gospel. These distortions happen not because there's something wrong with God's word. No, no, no. Mm -mm. There's... That these distortions happen because there's something wrong in us. See, even though God has saved us, our minds are still clouded by sin. And we place our clouded thoughts and our 21st century Americanized worldview on Scripture. And many times we read God's Word and we force it to say something that it doesn't. And that's why we're so offended at the Bible at times. 
Last week may have been one of those times for you. If you choose not to believe what Jesus taught on anger. Jesus demonstrated with crystal clarity how anger will be judged as murder. I mean, Jesus taught us that anger is the infancy stage of murder. I mean, who would have thought that by us calling somebody stupid or considering them to be a fool would be guilty of murder in God's court? The consequences of of these crimes, by the way, they lead to a very, very real place called hell without repentance and without Jesus as Lord and Savior. So Jesus' words, they shatter this illusion of our own self-righteousness. Self-righteousness, this idea that I'm right within and by myself. And in Jesus' sermon, he strips away every trace and fragment of religiosity. You know, he dismantles our religious smugness and our superiority in thinking that we've got him all figured out. Jesus also swept aside all that self-justification that is so common to all of us. Having the self-control not to kill somebody, that's, that's pretty easy for most of humanity. But what about our thought control? What about the, the fundamental dysfunction that scars and hardens our hearts? And what about our hateful attitude towards people or, or a certain group of people? Because they don't think like us, they don't look like us, they don't talk like us, they don't act like us. See, Jesus' indictment from last week, do not murder, is comprehensive. What he did there is he readjusts, he refocuses our misperception of reality, of what truth is. We live in an era where we think we can make up our own truth. And yet God's truth goes straight to the heart of the matter. So as we continue our study today on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, please know that Jesus continues now not only to deal with sinful behavior, but our sinful thoughts. So as a quick review, looking back at verse 21, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, Do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. So just picture, Jesus is preaching this. On a beautiful day in Galilee, he's got all these people around shaking their heads in agreement going, that's right, preacher. Amen. You stick it to them murderers. You get them. And then he says this in verse 22. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Gulp. Now, contrary to popular opinion here, Jesus is not raising the standard of murder. He's reiterating the standard of this law from the very beginning. A couple key points from last week include that the law against murder also prohibits potential murder. And number two, anger is sinful even if it never leads to action. So if key point number one didn't phase you, well, key point number two should have leveled you. Last week, I talked about the scrutiny of God. Jesus doesn't grade on a curve. 
In other words, we're all guilty. Every single one of us harbors anger right now at this moment at someone at some level. None of us love our neighbor as we should. All of us are guilty before a holy God because of the anger that's in our hearts. In other words, guys, we're all on the same playing field. Now that's the bad news, right? Got to have the bad news before you can get the good news. Key point number three from last week, Jesus is not only the lawgiver, he's the redeemer. This same Jesus who gives these impossible and these unattainable commands in the Sermon on the Mount is the same one who fulfills them on our behalf. Jesus not only gave the law, but see, he fulfilled the law just like he said he would in verse 17. So what's that mean for us? Well, it means everything, guys. It means everything. God has given us a gift. The gift is himself through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You know, we talk a lot about how salvation is not by works, but it is. It's just not your works. It's not my works. It's Christ's works. So what Christ has done with this gift is he's reconciled us back to God the Father. See, Jesus is the mediator between us and him, and reconciliation is his mission. So this topic of reconciliation is precisely where Jesus goes next in his Sermon on the Mount. So let's talk about reconciliation. Reconciliation is the mending of a broken relationship. It is to be at peace with one another. But how do you have peace? When there's, there's something between you and another person, some kind of offense has been committed. Well, we have to remove the offense. How does that take place? And not only that, but how does reconciliation fit into this conversation of murder and anger from last week? Hmm. Lastly, why do you care? Well, let's find out. If you would, please stand for the reading and the honoring of God's word. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21. You have, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. So, if you're offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, and first go and be reconciled with your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on your way with him to the courts, or your adversary will hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out of there until you've paid the last penny. And this is the word of the Lord for us here at River Bible Church. Please be seated. Stay.
take a deeper look here at verse 23. Jesus says, so, if you're offering your gift on the altar, your translation may say, therefore. So, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar. Basically, this is a transition word, and it refers back to Jesus' main point on anger from last Sunday. And the, and the point is this, right? Anger is sinful, even if it never leads to action. We think about it. Our, our angry thoughts, they do enough harm without us acting on them. So back to verse 23, if you are offering your gift on the altar. So what Jesus is doing here, he starts to paint a familiar scene to the disciples. Uh, Jesus may be alluding to the day of atonement here. Uh, Atonement is the path in which reconciliation between God and and man is possible. I like to think of atonement this way because... That's kind of a big, swanky theological term that we don't normally use. I I like to think of it as a play on words. If you look at the word atonement on your screen, you see at one in the word. So when you're at one with someone, you're at peace with someone. So the day of atonement is the holiest day for the Jews. Israel fasted on this day. They cleansed the sanctuary of all the impurities. They dealt with their sin through blood rituals. And the reason that our sin is dealt with through a blood ritual is because in Hebrews 9.22, it's only through blood that sin can be forgiven. Sin is that serious. So on the day of atonement, the Jews would individually bring a perfect animal to sacrifice for their sins. So when a blood sacrifice is made, forgiveness would then be granted. Just the, That's part of the Old Testament law, the sacrificial system. So looking at verses 23 and 24 now, Jesus says, if you're offering your gift on the altar, so there's the picture, the day of atonement, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, you got to leave your gift there in front of the altar and first go and be reconciled with your brother and then come and offer your gift. And we think, "Uh uh-oh, time out. Because a lot of times Christians say this, right? You know, I, I know, I know if I have a problem with my brother, If I've got a problem with my my neighbor or with my friend, I'll go to them and and I'll go and work that out. And yeah, that's true. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. Let's look at it again, verse 23. He says, there you remember that your brother has something against you. Hmm. And we think to ourselves... I don't like that at all. If my brother has something against me, he needs to come to me and then we can work it out. Why do I have to go to him? And I'm pretty sure that's what the disciples thought as well. However, this this is a command of reconciliation, right? It, It was a lot more costly to the disciples than it is to us today. Why is that? Well, Because in the first century, usually a person offering the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, they would walk up to the priest, they would stop, and they would present the animal to the priest. 
the person offering the sacrifice would then lay his hands on the animal, and it was a symbol of the the sin being transferred to the animal, Um, and it was a covering of our sin. It wasn't really forgiveness, it it was a covering. And it's right here. It's right here at that moment in the middle of this church service where Jesus is saying, stop. Stop right there. Do not give that sacrifice to the priest if your brother has something against you. (laughs) Now, in the first century, this was unheard of. We don't like the sound of it either. I get that. And the reason it was unheard of in the first century is because Jesus's original audience, they lived in Galilee. That is way north of Jerusalem where the temple is. So it would be like us walking from here to Phoenix. So Jesus is asking them to travel for a week to leave Jerusalem to get back to Galilee and to make things right. And then when reconciliation has been made, walk back to Jerusalem to complete the sacrifice and then turn around and walk another week and go home. So once again, Jesus is pointing us back to the Old Testament. This is nothing new. Jesus is in teaching the true intent of the law. See, reconciliation has always been a priority for and from God. And we see an example of this, a great example through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11. The Lord is speaking through Isaiah here, and he says this. What makes you guys think that I want all of your sacrifices. I am sick of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened cattle. I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to worship me, who asked you to parade through my courts with all of your ceremony? Mmm, that's a sermon for another day right there. And the Lord continues, he says, stop bringing me your meaningless gifts. This incense of your offering, it disgusts me. As for your celebrations of the new moon and the Sabbath and all these special days for fasting that you guys come up with to try to impress me. These things are all sinful. They're all false. I want no more of your pious meetings. It's been this way from the very beginning, guys. Brings us to key point number one for today. Jesus prioritizes reconciliation over church attendance. Jesus prioritizes reconciliation over church attendance. We are to settle conflicts before we try to fix things between God and us. We talk about this all the time, right? We have a relationship with God. That's the vertical relationship. We have a a relationship with people. That's the horizontal. That's the cross. And Jesus says, I need you to fix these horizontal relationships first before you come and worship me this way. How do we know this is true? Verse 24 tells us, Jesus says, first, go. You got to go and you got to be reconciled. Notice the order of importance here. He says, go and then be. Go and then be. First, be reconciled. 
Go make peace with your brother. Obviously, this is a difficult thing to do. It's nearly impossible at times. We cannot change another person's heart. We cannot change another person's mind. We will never make anyone do anything that they don't want to do. Even God doesn't do that. Even God doesn't make anybody do anything they don't want to do. But here's the key. Our desire, our heart's desire should be reconcile the relationship as much as possible. So how do you reconcile? How do you make things right? How, how do you strive for peace when the other person refuses to speak to you? I want to show you two verses in Romans. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 12, 18, if it's possible, and he goes on to say, I love this, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. He goes on to say in chapter 14, verse 19, let us pursue what promotes peace and what builds up one another. So in other words, Jesus is saying, and the Apostle Paul confirms this, we got to make an effort. We got to make the phone call. We got to send the email. We got to say we're sorry. We got to ask for forgiveness. And we think, I don't want to do that. What, what, if, they, what if they don't say they're sorry? What if they don't ask for forgiveness from me? You know, Dustin, it takes two to tango. It does take two to tango. And Jesus says what about that in this verse? He says, Whew. he says nothing. Jesus is not focused on them, is he? He's focused on you. You are not responsible for their behavior. You're only responsible for yours. You're not responsible for their response. See, that's on them. Their reaction to you trying to make peace, that's between them and God. Key point number two, reconciliation precedes worship. Reconciliation comes before worship. What do I mean by worship? Personal prayer, your devotional time, when you read the Bible, obviously coming to church and singing songs and attending Bible studies, anything that you do to build your relationship with God, that's, that's worship. And Jesus is teaching now that reconciliation with your brother comes before all of that. In other words, true worship is not magnified because you spend more time in prayer. True worship is not that you come to more Bible studies or you pray harder, whatever that means. True worship is enhanced by better relationships. The American church spends way too much time focusing on the exterior and that's why Jesus in this sermon continually goes straight to our hearts. Jesus continues now in verse 25. He says, reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him to the court, or your adversary will hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison. 
In your Bible, circle that word adversary and write in plaintiff. That's a plaintiff. So two things here, verses 25 and 26, really are a commentary on the previous two that we just looked at. Jesus now speaks of the consequences of our anger along with our refusal to reconcile. So Jesus uses an illustration from the the common practice of throwing someone into prison for an unpaid debt in the first century. Nobody filed bankruptcy back then. They just threw you in prison. Number two, Jesus illustrates the importance of reconciliation through the judicial process. So what Jesus is saying here is, while you still have time, do everything that you can to make peace. Otherwise, you will not only lose the court case, but you're also going to lose your life. Being thrown into prison, unable to get out, illustrates God's punishment. Jesus is spoke, uh, he's speaking here not only about an earthly judge, but the heavenly judge. He's talking about himself. He's not only talking about an earthly jail, but God's wrath in a very real place called hell. Key point number three, the time for reconciliation is always right now. The time for reconciliation is always right now. Tomorrow may be too late. So Jesus says in verse 26, truly I tell you, you will never get out of there. You'll never get out of prison until you have paid the last penny. So here's a question. How do you pay a debt while serving time in prison? Somebody has to pay the debt for you, right? You, you need a bail bondsman. But here's another question. How do you pay a sin debt? Bail bondsman, family member, your rich uncle can't pay that one. He doesn't have the capacity to pay that. No, for someone to pay your sin debt, you need a savior who is both God and he is man and he has offered his own blood on your behalf. And dear friends, that's exactly what Jesus did. Isaiah 53 is so cool, 53 through 55, because it's talking about all, it's talking about Jesus. And Isaiah was written five to 700 years before Jesus was even born. And in verse five, Isaiah says this, but he, that's Jesus, he was pierced, Why? Because of our rebellion. We we could write in there because of our anger. Because of our murder. He was crushed because of our iniquities. That's all our sin. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. The Apostle Paul says this in Colossians 2.14. Jesus erased the certificate of our debt. Jesus took care of that sin debt. With all of its obligations, we were a slave to that sin debt. Jesus took care of that. All of that was against us and it it opposed us and it is taken away by the nailing of that to the cross. Why is reconciliation such a, a priority to God? 
Because reconciliation is a crucial ingredient to the gospel. Within the narratives of the Old Testament, we see the theme of reconciliation throughout. One of the most famous stories would be the reconciliation that took place between Joseph and his brothers. Now, this story is not about any ordinary family. It's the, stor- it's the story of a, a super dysfunctional, this hyper dysfunctional family who just happens to be the 12 tribes of Israel. You read the story and you look at today's t- uh, reality TV and all the soap, opera- the soap operas. Man, they've got nothing on these guys. Nothing. Joseph is, is daddy's boy. Joseph's 11 brothers, they resent him for that. So his brothers, they are so, and get this now, they are so angry with him that they come up with this extensive plan to murder him. So we're talking about premeditated murder. And rather than murdering him like they planned, they end up selling Joseph as a slave in Egypt. And over the next several decades, Joseph works his way up to to be the vice president of Egypt. He becomes a politician. And by God's providence, God sends those 11 brothers back to see Joseph in Egypt. After several meetings between his brothers and Joe, here's where we pick up the story in Genesis 45 verse 1. Joseph could no longer keep his composure in front of the attendants. So he called out. He says, send everyone away from me. And no one was with him when he revealed his identity to his brothers. But he, he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it. And also Pharaoh's household heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, he said, guys, <laughs> I'm Joseph. And then he asked this question, is my father still living? Isn't that interesting? The very first question, how's dad? How's dad, guys? They couldn't answer that question because they were terrified in his presence. So in other words, their sin of anger and murder caught up with them. And now they're terrified because they know that they have been judged as guilty for those sins. Just as God promises, your sin will find you out. Numbers 32, 23. Joseph said to his brothers in verse four, he says, come here, come here. I'm, it's like he has to tell them again, I am your brother, Joseph. <laughs> The one that you sold in Egypt. Y'all remember that? I remember that. Don't be grieved. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here because God sent me ahead of you to preserve your life. So I want you to return quickly to my father and I want you to say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me without delay. Verse 14, Joseph threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and he wept. Benjamin wept on his shoulder. Verse 15, Joseph kissed each of his brothers. 
The same brothers that premeditated his murder, sold him into slavery. Joseph wept, and afterward his brothers talked with him. They, they had a conversation. Wouldn't you like to be a fly on that wall? This is an amazing story of reconciliation. But that's not near the story as God's story. I want you to think about this. God made it the priority not to walk from Jerusalem back to Galilee and back. Guys, he stepped down off his throne in heaven where seraphim continually sing, holy, holy, holy. And he steps down off this throne to become his own creation for the sole purpose of being the sacrifice for our sins. See, Jesus told us, that he told us to do the very same thing that he already did. He said, go and be reconciled, right? That's what he did. We didn't want Jesus, but Jesus came to us. So when we are reconciled, we are being transformed into the likeness of Christ ourselves. 2 Corinthians 5.18, everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ. Christ is the only mediator here. And look at this. He has now given us the ministry of reconciliation. So if God finds it necessary to reconcile with us, we who are vile sinners, how much more must we reconcile with our, our brothers and our neighbors and our sisters and our friends how much more is it a priority for us to pick up that phone and to reconcile? Doesn't matter how, how long it's been. It doesn't matter how small the offense. You know, I get it. Um, we tend to hear a sermon like this and we think, yeah, this is great. Still not going to do it, though. If I've offended this person, he needs to come and see me. I've got one more scripture passage for you. 1 John 4.20. If anyone says that I love God and yet hates his brother or sister, he's a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Verse 21, and we have this command from him, the one who loves God must also love his brother and his sister. Father in heaven, thank you so much for allowing us to wrestle with this text. Thank you for showing us what reconciliation is. <coughs> For God so loved the world that you gave, you gave your one and only son. Saying thank you for that is not enough. Looking, looking at what you've done for us should do one thing, Lord God, and that should drive us to our knees and simply just worship. Many of us have one person on our mind right now. 
and we've got a lump in our throat, and we've got this thing in our gut, and we've got something we don't want to do. And Father, this week, I, I pray that we continue to seek your face with that relationship, and that you would lead us, you would guide us in how to make reconciliation with that person. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.